Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. This next section of the Lo Jong text, which hopefully you all have your copy, or you're just memorizing it as we go along, or both, um, is called uh, Assess and Extend. And this is uh, point five. And you'll notice which e with each point, there's an overview, kind of an umbrella statement that describes what the section's about. And then the slogans underneath that explain to you how one would practice that, um, that idea. Welcome. So, this section is called Assess and Extend. Uh, when we have a habit or when we have a practice, it's good sometimes to stop and assess so that we can extend the practice. And we do exactly the same with training the heart. When we're training the heart, we might be doing some practices. And then once in a while, we stop and we assess. Is gratitude developing? Is it easier to forgive people? Am I calmer? And sometimes you might ask yourself some of these questions. And then you'll say, oh, I tell myself a story that I've forgiven that person. But there's a little left over. <laughs> it's like I said yesterday, if awakening means going into a dark room and turning on the dimmer, the brighter it gets, the more detail you see. And so this is true when we're training our heart. We need to stop and assess how things are going. And you can do this all the time. Like, I really try and use parenting as a practice. And I can't believe the stuff that comes out of my mouth sometimes. <laughs> yeah. My son, uh, I don't even remember what he was doing, but he was sitting on my lap. Oh, and there were certain clothes he didn't want to wear to go outside. He wanted to wear lighter clothes, but it was really cold out. And as I was trying to do this with him, my wife was giving me a whole rundown of what was in his drawer and what I could use and what was too small. And the whole thing was so overwhelming. My son upset, my wife giving me like an inventory of the clothing that I got really mad at my son. But in a way, I was angry at both of them. <laughs> my son for not just getting dressed like an adult. <laughs> 
and my wife for not talking to me like an adult. <laughs> and then after that, I thought, oh, it was actually the next day I thought, oh, you know what? I have to practice more. So we do the same with uh, mobility. Right? We're learning certain practices, our body starts feeling great, and then we hit a plateau. And so we might stop and say, okay, now what should I explore? And then you start to try new things. It doesn't mean the stuff you did was wrong. It just means you're refining it. So if you come to a workshop like this and you think, oh my God, I've been doing my backbend wrong, that wouldn't be the right way uh, to approach it. That wouldn't be assessing the situation. It's not that it's wrong. It's just we're going to refine it. We're going to refine it and refine it and refine it. And so you ask yourself, um, are you learning a new vocabulary? Is the vocabulary being refined? And where are you stuck? And I think we all know, especially with kids, that um, sometimes the tools we use to work with our kids when we're frustrated, when we're frustrated, um, are uh, um, too limited. And we need more tools. So the day after I got mad at everybody in my family, um, I got a great book called Playful Parenting. Does anybody have this book? This is the best book. The whole book are just anecdotes of ways to be playful in moments of frustration. That's the whole book. You can't read more than a page at a time because there are just so many ideas. Yeah. So now, when my son is upset, I uh, make fun of him. <laughs> yeah. So uh, he's not nursing, but his younger brother's nursing. So he really wants in the morning to uh, nurse, but he can't nurse. So he has to come with me and get up and play. And he'll say, oh no, I don't want to play. I just want mama. Oh, I just want booby. <laughs> so then, yeah, so, so I say, me too. <laughs> and, then, and then I explain to him, but his younger brother ha has to get the milk. It's not enough right now for them both, which probably isn't true, but... Anyways, um, but he doesn't understand that because it's six o'clock in the morning, it's dark, and he's three years old. So what I do is I take out two uh, stuffed animals. One of them really wants to go back in the bed with mama. And one of them uh, really doesn't. And they fight. And we do this like play acting fighting until he starts getting involved in the theater of it. And then Three minutes later, he doesn't care anymore, and like he just wants to go play. Because he's like, we've, we've played it out. We've taken it out of his brain. You see? So sometimes, as parents, we have to assess. It's the same as practitioners. You have to stop and go, what's working, what's not really working? If you've been practicing for five years, six years, seven years, and your back bends are getting pretty good, but you get into the same argument with your spouse, that you did six years ago, I would say you should stop and you should assess. 
Are the backbends making me a more compassionate person? Or do maybe I need some other tools? <laughs> so this section offers pointers for two things. One is how to assess. And two is how to extend your reach. Because this is bodhicitta practice, this is a practice for awakening ourselves and others. How do we wake up ourselves and others if we don't continually <laughs> extend our reach? Sometimes we have to reach deeper in our own life, and sometimes we have to reach deeper in other lives. Sometimes we've done too much therapy, and we should start paying attention to other people. And the best part of this section, as far as I can tell, is that there are no grades. There's an assessment with no exam. So there are four points, line 19, 20, 21, 22. And the way to read those points, I'm suggesting, is as a how-to manual for how to assess and extend. And the first point is, there's only one point. <laughs> it's so simple. What's the point? And there's a Zen saying, what's the point to figure out what's the point? That's the point. What's the point? You can appreciate others, and you can't appreciate yourself if you're stuck on your own ego. That's the point. The point is, you can't train your heart to pay closer attention to life if you're just stuck in your own ego. On the one hand, the world has so many complexities, so many layers that we've internalized about everything. You name a topic, you name an area of your body, you name a vocabulary, you name a behavior, and all of it are layered, internalized narratives from our culture. All of it. Okay? Even so, it's all your responsibility. So even if all that stuff was not your fault, you have to take responsibility for it. And earlier, we didn't cover this line, but if you've read the text before in whole, an earlier section says, don't blame. Another translation is, drive all blames into one. Don't blame. So you have a responsibility. And that's why I suggested practice as a form of responsibility yesterday. And I gave you some homework. Even some simple homework, like say hi to somebody. <laughs> say hi to people and then assess. What did you notice? Did it brighten things up for you? Or did you maybe notice, because this is what I notice sometimes, that nothing changed. That nothing changed because I wanted it to change in a certain way. Like I wanted saying hi to people make me feel more blissful. But it didn't. I'm still grumpy, but I'm saying hi to people. So then the thing I can notice is, well, what is the stuff I'm putting on top of the practice to expect it to turn out how I think it's supposed to turn out? 
And then another angle on the topic, which is not just um, to know that the point is to get off of yourself, but also to trust your own eyes. And the whole text works like this. It's like coming at one angle and it's saying, okay, <laughs> assess and extend. And okay, the first thing to do is, what was the first thing? There's only one point, which is get off yourself. And then the next point is trust yourself. <laughs> yeah, isn't that funny? That the more you get out of your own way, the more you start to trust yourself. And usually what improves any situation is connection. Name a situation of conflict, and connection is the thing that improves it. But to have good connection, we have to trust ourselves. Because otherwise, who's the self that's in connection? We don't know. And then in order to trust ourselves, we need to have some degree of solitude. That's an interesting paradox, isn't it? Like, to have connection, we need a measure of solitude. We need to set up a tent in the land of solitude for 10 minutes, or 20 minutes, or 30 minutes every single day. For some people, their first affinity is with solitude, and for some people, their primary affinity is other people. Do you know who you are? Maybe this has something to do with genetics, but I also think that it has a lot to do with how safe we felt in either of these lands when we were small. How safe you felt in the land of solitude or how safe you felt in the land of other people. What were your first experiences of solitude? And what were your first experiences of other people? So the precursor to trusting oneself in solitude and the precursor to trusting others is a really good holding environment. What psychologists called a secure base. And what's meant by this is the unimpinging care of a caregiver. The unimpinging presence of a caregiver. Not too far away and not too close. A mom or a dad or an aunt or a sibling or a grandmother is close by and you lose yourself in a game and you start playing. And every once in a while, you're playing, and then you turn just to see how far away the caregiver is. If they're too far, the game ends, and you have to go figure out how to get some security again. And if you have a narcissistic caregiver, or you have a caregiver that doesn't have their own secure base, then they're right on top of you like a helicopter parent. 
And then you can't play. Because you're taking care of your, the need of the caregiver. So then you don't have a place to play. Because um, the caregiving is too close. So a parent's job is to govern over solitude, to make sure that play can happen in that space. So that means all of you who are parents, give yourselves a break, give your kids a break, and assess and see, can they play? And what are the conditions in the house for them to play? Like, likely, if they're really small, you might have to get on the floor with them with the right music and the right trains or puzzles or whatever to get them to settle in and then leave the room and go make dinner so that they can hear you and they know you're there and don't ask them how they're doing. <laughs> and don't make eye contact. <laughs> Freud uh, was famous for saying um, that solitude is an absence. And the child psychologist who followed in Freud's footsteps, who in my opinion is a Buddha, uh, Donald Winnicott, um, he said solitude is a presence. In solitude, we might say, oh, I'm finally on my own. Or we're on our own, or I'm on my own. But you know you're not on your own. Because you're only on your own because there's enough support in the environment for you to be on your own. So part of our practice is to enjoy our imagination, enjoy our body, enjoy nature, enjoy other people. And always check out this ratio that we never get right between solitude and the company of other people. You're never going to get it right, so don't worry about it. You're never going to get it right. If you're around people a lot and you're really happy, you're going to keep thinking, you probably need to be alone. <laughs> and if you're alone, you probably are going to remember the great party you had last week. So whatever. This is how our minds work. But if we're going to really be present with other people, we need some time every day where we're alone and we learn how to trust ourselves, especially if that's a wound for us. And if we're really good at being alone and we have so much anxiety and worry and self-consciousness around being with other people and we don't trust ourselves with other people, then we need to be with other people. <laughs> Whenever someone says that they're having a really, they just had a bad ending to a relationship and they don't want to have another relationship, I always think, you should get into another relationship as quickly as possible <laughs> to work out these troubles you have in relationship. Because what are you going to work it out? What? How? <laughs> Thinking about the last relationship? And then we accept who we are and we trust ourselves more and more. Do you see how these are connected? 
Thich Nhat Hanh, a Vietnamese Zen teacher, um, who had a stroke last year, um, he's apparently doing really well in rehab. Um, All these good people are getting old, you know, and having health problems and dying. Like uh, Thich Nhat Hanh had a stroke. Bernie Glassman had a stroke this year. Just kind of came home from the hospital this week. And uh, David Bowie and Oliver Sacks. All these good people, and many of many of whom I associate to like the best associations I have to New York City are a lot of these people. So anyways, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, here's what he said. If you pour a handful of salt into a cup of water, can you picture this? You pour a handful of salt into a cup of water, the water becomes undrinkable. But if you pour the salt into a river, people can continue to draw the water to cook, wash, and drink. The river is immense, and it has the capacity to receive, embrace, and transform. When our hearts are small, our understanding and compassion are limited and we suffer. We can't accept or tolerate others and their shortcomings, and we demand that they change. But when our hearts expand, these same things don't make us suffer anymore. We have a lot of understanding and compassion and can embrace others. We accept others as they are, and then they have a chance to transform. When we're really narrow, then we get broken so easy. <clears throat> and then when we're really wide and resilient, then we can hold more suffering. And the thing is, and I can't explain this because I don't understand this. There are some human beings who are just wired, for whatever reason, to just be able to hold so much suffering. And they're like the saints and sages in our communities. Look around in your community, and I bet you know people who have suffered like crazy, and they're like pretty happy. <laughs> and you ask them to try and explain, and they have no clue. They just have the gift. And they're usually the people who are pretty earthy and they don't have lots of stuff or they don't need lots of stuff. And they like giving things away. Do you know these people? Yeah. So these are the wisdom keepers in our communities. They're the people we go to when we're having a hard time because they've had a really hard time. And they're still around, and they're kind of funny. Do you know what I mean? Like, they can tell a good joke at the right time. Or they can just be quiet and sit with you. So when we cultivate mindfulness, and we cultivate movement, and we cultivate calm breathing, we start to cultivate contentment. Because we know how to wake up the body and heart, and also how to settle our reactivity. And then we become wiser because we can connect with our own joy 
and we can connect with our own suffering. And if we were really lucky to have parents uh, who loved each other over a period of time, then we were lucky enough to internalize a blueprint for how love can work in a relationship between two human beings. And of course, our loving will look different. But that's why if you have children, and I say this because I know some of you have uh, kids, um, you can leave your kids money, and you can leave your kids an inheritance and property and wealth, and your favorite watch. Um, but the best thing uh, you can leave your children is to show them uh, how you love, how you can love your friends, and how you can love specific other people. You asked about unconditional love. What's your name again? Abby. Abby. And I kept saying, no, 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 not unconditional love. Let's do really conditional love. This person, for a long period of time. So, you can show your kids how you work things out with people. <clears throat> And you can show your kids how you uh, circled around contentment in relationships. Doesn't mean you're like a perfect person in relationships. But you can show your kids how you worked at it. And then the best part is you don't have to give them any money. What a relief for yoga teachers, hey? <laughs> They're not getting anything anyways, really. Yeah. Yeah. I leave you my manduka <laughs> and this old zabuton. <laughs> Sorry about the stains. <laughs> yeah. And then we get to um, the last line. And this will be the last line of our weekend, which is line 22. Practice when you're distracted. So we've been talking a lot about assessing practice and like ways of thinking about how we're doing. Here is a line that really focuses more on the extension, which is uh, how do you extend your practice? Start trying to bring your practice into your distractions. When we're distracted, we reinforce a distracted way of living. Are there any comments or questions, or can I, can I keep going with this? Or I just realized that I've done four lines and no one said anything. Is that okay? Yeah. Great. What does it mean to be distracted? I don't know. What does it mean to be distracted? <laughs> Somebody, what does it mean to be distracted? Being the opposite of being mindful, yeah, not, being in the not being in the moment, not listening to, someone. Not listening to somebody, Mindlessly watching Oprah, focusing on your to-do list and not the people around you, mm -hmm. listening, to the noise. listening to the noise, 
Creating stories. Creating stories. Getting upset when things don't go your way. You get any idea? Okay. Yeah. So, when you're being disrupted, you know, like the opposite from um, being aware of what's happening uh -huh. right now and here and now, so in that sense, being aware of negative thoughts can be also being mindful or being aware. Right. So, is it where you're going to? Ah. Thank you for the segue. <laughs> so to be mindful is to have a clear awareness of what's happening without being entangled in what's happening and without being resistant to what's happening. And of course, let's not be idealistic. We're going to be resistant. Um, but we can be mindful and have space for resistance, which is, I think, what you were saying. But that's a different way of being in the world than just being reactive and all jacked up. If you stop trying to fix your emotions all the time, you're not betraying them. In mindful practice, mindfulness practice, we stop trying to fix ourselves and we stop trying to solve our emotional problems. Some people dismiss their emotions. Some people overreact to their emotions. But what we're training is how to feel what's happening in emotional life and not add anything to it. And one of the big add-ons that we often don't see happening is fixing. Trying to fix ourselves. So, if you have a strong emotion, what mindfulness does, what presence does, what staying with your breathing and feeling the emotion does, is it gives the emotion a space in which the emotion can feel safe. So we want to make our emotions feel safe. We want to help our emotions feel safe. If you have loneliness and it's really, really intense, you want to find a way to help the loneliness feel safe. The meditation space has to be safe, just like your body has to be warmed up before you exercise. My parents? <laughs> Let me give you an example. If you have a friend or you have a parent who's always trying to fix you, will you go to them with strong emotions? No. So if strong emotions arise in you and you're always trying to fix them, are they going to really let themselves be seen? No, they're not. So watch the kind of mind that you bring to strong emotions. If you bring the mind that wants those emotions to go away really fast, then those emotions are not going to transform. They're going to run away for a little bit or be pushed away, and then they're going to come back again. If you're angry that you're angry, 
then your anger doesn't feel safe. If you get angry and then you feel shame that you were just angry, then your anger doesn't have a safe space to be anger. What you end up having are very strong opinions about your anger <laughs> and very strong opinions about your anxiety, what it is and what it means. And if you have a lot of strong opinions about your anger and your loneliness and your anxiety and what they are and what they mean, then they don't feel safe. And they can't just exist in your heart. And then you might have some practice, but you won't be able to extend it. Yes? So, like, when I meditate, oftentimes I'll have, you know, powerful emotions occur, which then kind of pull me out of the practice. Mm -hmm. And I'm confused about the, like, okay, I don't want to, like, repress my emotions, but I'm doing this practice and... Like, How do they pull you out of practice? Because like, if I'm like, thinking I'm breathing, all of a sudden now my mind is not with that. It's not with the other, the other practice like we just did earlier. Um, you know, if, if I had like anger come up, uh -huh. like, I wouldn't be mindful of that, and I'd be in the anger. But then to like, get back into practice, like I kind of like stuff the anger into a box. Oh, but, oh yeah, I see. So let's, let's um, slow it down. So we're meditating on breathing, just feeling breathing, mm -hmm. actually staying with the breath, so good. And then the breath starts like traveling. Was, oh, and then I feel like maybe something in my stomach. Oh, is that the burrito? <laughs> no. Oh, and then you remember this conversation at work on Wednesday, and like, you realize now why you've been worked up about it, because it was actually really rude what they said. And then you start to feel kind of angry. And then you can't stay with your breathing anymore. You're just thinking about uh, your boss and how they spoke to you in this really condescending way. And you feel it viscerally. Okay, so then your mindfulness practice now changes. So instead of the object being your breathing, if the emotion becomes so strong that it dominates the object of the breath, you leave the breath and you let the emotion become the object and you just feel the anger in the body with lots of space around it. You don't get into the stories about your boss you just feel the energy of anger. So it's like you cup your hands and you're just holding the anger here. Just holding the anger here and feeling the anger and investigating the anger without adding a lot on to the anger. And then you don't take the mental states that come with anger and turn them into problems. So anger is not a problem. But if you say that anger is not a valid object of meditation, then you've made it into a problem. So anger can be the object of mindfulness. Um, and this might sound a little strange, but 
if you're able to feel your emotional life without trying to fix anything, then it starts to stop an over-involvement with your inner life. A lot of us are over-involved with our inner life. Most of our distractions come in the wake of reactivity. So if we can settle reactivity, then we can start to feel what's moving through us without necessarily, with, without it unfolding the way we think it's supposed to unfold. Yeah. So would that be an example of number 14, seat confusion, or in this case, anger? Yeah. Yeah. It's another way of saying it. Yeah. Yeah. You have a daily practice. You start a daily practice where every day you sit still for 20 minutes. You sit still and you feel your breathing for 20 minutes and you surf all of those different emotions and thoughts and neuroses and hallucinations and fantasies, all that stuff that shows up. And if you're somebody that has very unstable emotions, this is really, really important that you do. Because a lot of our emotional instability is from our reactivity, right? Not 100% of it. Some people are wired to have emotional sensitivity that can be overwhelming. But for most of the population, we're kind of amped up and reactive. And this causes unstable emotions. Then you get into the workplace, someone says to you, and you immediately punch them in the nose. <laughs> right? You immediately punch them in the nose, and then you think, oh my god. Can I tell you a funny story? I know this guy who was a waiter when he was younger at a fancy Italian restaurant in Manhattan. He was a musician. and um, So anyways, he was serving in this fine establishment. He worked there for a few years. And one day, somebody ordered a bottle of champagne. And he went to the table with the champagne, and he uncorked it. Do you know what champagne does sometimes? Mm -hmm. yeah. And it, it just started overflowing, so he didn't know what to do, so he just put his mouth over it. <laughs> and he got fired on the spot. Because you, you can imagine, right? You're like, because you don't do champagne a lot, and then one day you do champagne, and start, so what's your initial default? You, come, you don't want to waste the champagne, so you put your mouth over it. Okay, so it's the same way. We need to train every day in a formal way. And we need to do that so when your colleague says the stupid thing in the meeting, 
you can recognize through the barometer of your um, body, you can gauge your temperature. Right? You can check the reactivity and not act on it. Or you might start opening your mouth and then be like, or that's a really good time to go to the bathroom. <laughs> and you just step out for a minute and you calm down. But the fact that you are able to have some measure of distance between what was coming up and what you're about to do, that's the key. And I think if we don't have a regular training of our minds, we can't catch reactivity very fast. Especially our default reactive zones. As Thich Nhat Hanh calls me at this time every day <laughs> to see how things are going. Just tell him I'm busy. <laughs> so, if you work in a job where you have some leadership position and there's other people who are looking up to you, it's really, really important that you know how to work with your reactivity. Because you're going to model the level of mindfulness in the network of people that you work with. And when somebody has a practice and we're around them, we can feel it. If you're a school teacher, it's really important that you practice because your kids can feel it. If you have elderly parents that you look after, it's really important that you practice. Because otherwise, they're just going to be triggering you the same way they triggered you 40 years ago, 50 years ago. So, let me sum up. Uh, people who are called to do uh, healing work, like the work many of you do, or therapy, or psychiatry, or family medicine, um, they're often called to do work because they love people. And also because they've suffered. And also because they love stories. They love people's life stories. When you interact with people, you connect at the level of the heart, but you also really connect with people's stories. Storytelling is at the heart of the helping professions. Stories can really heal us. The problem is, and every meditator knows this, that stories get old. Not just the stories of patients or the stories of your clients, but the stories of therapists, the stories of clinicians, the stories of what health and sanity and happiness are. They get old and they get stale and they don't mean so much anymore. So that's why we practice. On the one hand, we want calmness and we want to feel what our life is like underneath stories. And on the other hand, we need new stories. So we need texts like the Lojong text to remind us that there's other stories we can tell. And usually the texts are a little bit idealistic and we really need that. We need to stretch our imagination to actually believe that we ourselves are Buddhas. We need to stretch our imagination 
to really convince ourselves that we're happier when other people are happy. And so if we turn our lives into projects of getting other people happier and more content and less obsessed with buying shit, then we get happier. When the people around us consume less, we get happier. And if you live in an economy that's based on endless growth, then the way that it functions or the way that it evolves to function is through consumerism. An economy can only grow when there are more consumers. And if the consumers are buying a lot of stuff, then they have to burn a lot of fossil fuels. Because the only ways you can make stuff and, and transport stuff is through fossil fuels. So then, if you keep burning fossil fuels, then the climate changes. And then if the climate changes, the resources change. And then, what happens? Well, then you start to see that all of these issues are totally interconnected. That climate change, mental health, spiritual practice, consumerism, capitalism, are all interdependent. So our practice needs to address all of those pieces. And what I'm suggesting is that if you sit still every day and work with your reactivity, you won't want to buy stuff anymore. And the stuff that you'll want to buy will be things that last a long time or make other people's lives better. You'll see. It'll just start happening. You'll be like, God, I, I bought the thing, and like, it doesn't make me happy like how it used to make me happy. I used to get those, buy those shoes from the shoe store, and now I feel like pretty happy, but, you know, I'm old now, and they don't even, you know, look good on me anymore, because no one looks at me anymore. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That's not the story. Or maybe you're like, now I can buy the shoes, but my whole self-esteem is not wrapped up in the shoes. I just buy them because, like, I love those shoes. They're awesome. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Totally different motivation. So thank you so much. Uh, I think we should take a break, and then... We'll have some discussion time, and then I want to do a couple practices. And then uh, we'll be done at what time? Four. Four. Is ten minutes enough for a break? Okay, thank you.